Okay, I had no idea how thirsty I was for that until we had it. Bienvenidos los hermanos. We're glad to have you with us. Happy Easter, everybody. So glad you came. Look at North Boulevard. Oh, my goodness. Those of you online, what a day already. This is our third service just at this campus, two at the West Campus, and then we'll have even uh, one or two more going on before the day's over with. Oh, my goodness. God is generous to us. Really glad you're here. Uh, and uh, Karen Coachella, I understand that you're here from Albuquerque, and we have folks here from Toronto, Canada, our neighbors to the north. That's a warm way of talking about them. And, um, and people from all over. Those of you online, we're really glad you're with us. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 15, which I think God explicitly decided would be preached on Easter Sunday because it is a text that celebrates this great truth. Jesus says, here's what Jesus says. If the Son sets you free, you know the rest of it? If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. I'm not sure that anybody can hold a candle to how much this woman, Lisa Turkhurst, has had to learn this lesson. I didn't really know her story until we invited her to come speak at North Boulevard. When she was born, her mother was in a sanatorium of some sort, so she had to be passed around from grandmothers and aunts and all this. She grew up in a trailer in uh, a poor part of North Carolina. One of her earliest memories of her father was him telling her and her sister that he never wanted children before he abandoned the family. She hasn't spoken to him in 30 years. The sister she so beloved died in her childhood of liver disease. Lisa's grandmother mistakenly allowed the next door neighbor guy to babysit Lisa when the grandmother was gone. I won't say any more than that. As Lisa went to school, especially as a teenager, she was bullied, had zero self-esteem. She got married to a guy by the name of Art, who was a notable Christian, until she discovered after about 20 years of marriage that Art had a chemical addiction and had been carrying on an affair, unbeknownst to her, for years. So the question you might ask is, how does a woman like this continue to publish books like this one, forgiving what you can't forget? She raises the question in this book, do you ever find yourself defining life by before and after the deep hurt, the horrific season, the conversation that stunned you, the shocking day of discovery, the stunning call about the accident, the divorce, the suicide, the wrongful death, so unfathomable, you still can't believe they're gone. The malpractice, the breakup, the day your friend walked away, the hateful conversation, the remark that seems to now be branded on your soul, the taking of something that should have been yours, the brutality unleashed on the one you love, the email you weren't supposed to see, the manipulation, the violation, the false accusation, the theft, the fire, the firing, the day everything changed. Here's what Lisa will tell you through all that she went through. If you hold someone else in bondage, you will have to remain in bondage as well. So long as you hold someone else's debt, you too will always be a debtor. 
And that's really what Deuteronomy 15 is about. It's about a God who earnestly wants us to experience genuine freedom. Not the freedom to do anything we desire, that's actually a form of bondage, but the freedom to be excellent. The freedom to be everything He designed us to be. This is what Easter is about. So on the cross, Jesus canceled the debt of our sins, but in the empty tomb, Jesus set us free from the bondage of death. You guys understand this. Death has no power over you. We've been set free from the bondage of this. This makes Jesus a grand bondage freer. That's what He does. He cancels the guilt, all the hurts, all the pains. He takes it upon Himself. He hangs on a cross so that one person can pay for all the pain from the very beginning of time to the second coming itself. One person can take all the pain and say, I'll wear that for you. And then rise from the dead to say, and even death won't get you. In Easter, God has indeed set us free from the penalty of death. But here's what else He's done. He's taught you that it's now your turn. Right? It's your turn. As He set you free, He now invites you to set everyone else free. That's really kind of who we are, isn't it? We're a people of grace. I, I know that if you're not a Christian, the, the image that you have of a lot of Christians, Bible-believing Christians, is probably that they're rather graceless people, maybe legalistic and sometimes way too involved in politics. But at the end of the day, let me just say this, everything we do is all about grace. It's the grace that God gives us not only to be set free, but to set others free. So somebody in your life likely needs to be set free. I know some of your stories. For some of you, you've, you had a husband or a wife who abandoned you. And, um, and you can't get over the pain. I just want you to know that in the power of Jesus, you can set it free. Some of you grew up in households where you were abused. Some of you terribly abused. I mean, it's been with you for years. Or at least you weren't loved. I want you to know you can set it free. That's what Easter is about. You can set it free. You don't have to carry it. Jesus took it onto a cross, and then at the resurrection, he set us out of our bondage. He set us free. And I want to say this. If you keep holding on to it, not only are you robbing someone else of the grace that God will offer them, but you're keeping yourself in bondage. I stumbled on this image from Wales. This woman was in trouble for something. That's not an important part of my story. But you see she's being led out of a Welsh prison by a guard who's handcuffed to her. Now, here's my question. Which one of these two women is free in this image? And the answer is neither of them is. For as long as you've chained yourself to someone else in order to hold them in debt to you, not only are they chained, but you're chained. 
and you don't have to be chained. Because in Christ, we get to be set free from these things. I'll show you how. He'll take care of the justice. You don't have to worry about justice. He'll handle that. You get to be a repository of mercy. You get to be the one who says, you know, in spite of the gossip, in spite of the hurt, in spite of the bitterness, in spite of the resentment, in spite of all the baggage that I've had to carry because of you, I set you free. It's Easter. I set you free. You and God can deal with it now. I'm done. That's exactly what Deuteronomy 15 is about. It's a text that simply describes the freedom that God wants his people to enjoy. I'm going to read through it. It won't take long because it's a short chapter. And I just want you to see how this theme of freedom plays out. That not only does God set us free, but God actually says, hey, I want you to do it too. Let's start at verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they've made to a fellow Israelite. They should not require payment from anyone of, uh, among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt of your fellow, that your fellow Israelite owes you. I just want to say, it is not that God is against foreigners here. It's just that foreigners haven't signed on to the covenant yet. So this is a covenant action. Foreigners were invited to sign into the covenant, but there were both responsibilities and freedoms that came from signing on. Here's how God describes it. There need be no poor people among you. I think that's one of the most important verses in the book of Deuteronomy because what God is saying is, I have a plan for you that is so generous, it is so beautiful, it is so full of blessings that you really ought never have a poor person. I mean, when you think about it, God's bringing them into a land that he describes as flowing with milk and honey, a land where the wine is abundant, a land where the rain drops and the crops spring up. It's a land, he says, where even old men are having babies. I mean, married to people who are. It's a place, he says, where everywhere you turn, you're able to see the crops just spring up there. The harvest is plentiful. There are parties and festivals and celebrations. There are tambourines. There are dances. He says, that's the land I'm giving you. If you will do what I say, that's what you will enjoy. And that's why he can say, if you'll do it my way, there won't be any poor people. You know, the saddest verse, I think, in this chapter, this is the happiest verse. God actually, God actually wanted to give Israel a paradise. So Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the opening two chapters of the Bible, begin with humans in paradise. Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters in the Bible, end with paradise. So the Bible is humans from paradise to paradise and all this mess in the middle. And what he says to Israel is, you're supposed to be my role model of what paradise can be. If you'll just obey me, if you just do it my way, it'll be so much better. And the happiest verse is that one. If you do it my way, you won't have any poor people. And the saddest verse is verse 11. You know what he says in verse 11? There will always be poor among you. Do you get it? It's not like God's not smart enough to see the difference. What he's saying is, you won't do it my way. And because you won't do it my way, there are going to be poor people. So he makes provision for disobedience. That's a pretty, pretty generous father. You know, that's not something I usually like to do is make provision for my kids to mess up. I'd do it. I may ask him to do something. We may lay down a rule. But then I would always assume, okay, what happens if they don't? 
And that's what God's up to in this text. You really shouldn't ever have to be in debt. But I know you're going to be. And so every seven years, he says, we're going to cancel all debts. He says, if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. You will lend to many nations and will borrow from none. I think of that when I think, again, so we've talked a lot about Judaism and Jews as we work through Deuteronomy. Just think about how many Jewish financiers have been in the world. How many banks have been led by Jews? How many fin uh, successful businesses and financial organizations and attorneys and whatnot, judges, how many have been led by Jews? In a lot of ways, God is saying that. He says, look, if you'll just kind of do it my way, you'll lend to many nations. You'll borrow from none. You'll rule over nations, but none will ever rule over you. What I want you to see in the text, as we just pause for a moment, is that God is saying, I want a people who get a reset every seven years. You get to start over. We're going to cancel all debts. By the way, that's actually quite a challenge if you think about it. Uh, the U.S. would have a really difficult time trying to implement something like that. A point that you might miss in this text is that God is not speaking to the Israeli government. He's speaking to the individual Jew. I want you to know that because his concern is not a governmental policy. Maybe that would be nice. I'm not suggesting it's wrong. His concern is me. He's not saying that the U.S. government or the Israeli government ought to forgive debts. What he's saying is, David Young, I expect you to live debt-free. I expect you to release your creditors. I expect your debtors. I expect you to be the one who sets people free who are in bondage. It's a personal ethic. God wants me to practice giving freedom. He wants me to practice showing mercy. Let's keep reading. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites and in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given to you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. So when you release them from these debts, when you set them free, do it generously, he says. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. And be careful not, so I know what you're thinking. God knows what you're thinking too. I'm not comparing myself to God. But if you're thinking, this is what you're thinking. Well, in year number six, nobody made any loans because you knew the next year you're going to have to cancel it. So the Lord addresses that. He says, I don't want you to harbor this evil thought that the seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near. So you will not show you will do not show ill will towards the needy among you, your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. Listen to what God says. If you harbor ill will and refuse to give a loan because you know the seventh year is just around the corner, he says they may appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. In other words, generosity is supposed to mark us. It's supposed to mark your relations. It's supposed to mark your marriage. So your husband and your wife's not perfect. Get over it. You're not either. Ask me, I'll tell you. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've been in ministerial counseling and it's like all this stuff about what's wrong with her and all. And then all of a sudden you find out what's wrong with him. It's like, hey, you know what? I think both of you ought to show a little mercy. Hey, your boss may not be a really good person. Get over it. You probably aren't either. I mean, maybe we can start by saying all of us need grace. All of us need forgiveness. Isn't that a better place to start than the arrogant position that says, man, I'm the standard and y'all aren't living up to it. Give generously, he said, and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you. 
and all your work, everything you put your hand to. There were, here's the sad verse. There will always be poor people in the land. And he just said there shouldn't be. If you obey me, there wouldn't be, but you're obviously not going to obey. So there will always be poor. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Now, he's going to turn to the second thing. So the first thing is cancel deaths. The second thing is set all the slaves free. But before we do this, we want to address yet again, because we've talked about it quickly in other contexts, we want to address yet again the question of slavery in the Old Testament. So I'm, I'm going to do it really briefly here. Does the Bible condone, does it accept slavery? The answer is absolutely not, not the American experience of slavery. In fact, the Bible condemns the American experience of slavery as pure evil. The American South deserved the destruction it got for what it was doing. So we just need to make sure we understand that. In that case, it was a race-based slavery in which humans were captured and forced into slavery. The Bible uses language like this one. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, it actually says that anyone who practices that kind of slavery is as bad as people who murder their parents and says they're worthy of a death sentence, which is what many in the South received. So the Bible does not condone that. But you do need to know that in scarce cultures in antiquity, slavery could mean a lot more than it means to Americans. Let me just point it out real quickly. When you read the word slave in the Old Testament, oftentimes it's a word that means something like sharecropper or tenant farmer, where one person owns the property and other people work the property and they give proceeds to the owner. That's called a slave in the Bible, but it's nothing like what Americans mean when we use the word slave. Second, whenever Israel went to war with people, it was terribly expensive to maintain internment camps, POW camps. Y'all know that we, we still have POWs. The U.S. still has POWs from the 2001 Afghan wars at Guantanamo Bay. It's cost us literally hundreds of millions of dollars to keep these prisoners. In, in ancient cultures, they didn't have that kind of money. They couldn't do it. So if you had prisoners of war, they just simply assigned them out to different families. That was called slavery. It's not the same as what we mean by slavery. And then third, in the same way that ancient cultures did not have the money for internment camps, they didn't have the money for prisons. It was just too expensive to maintain prisons. That's an idea that's foreign to us. But in most places in the world, they just don't have the money for it. So rather than taking a convicted prisoner, putting them in jail, you know, setting them down and giving them whatever they need, you just would assign them to a family for a period of time, and that was their prison. So what I want you to see is that oftentimes when we read of slavery in the Bible, it's not what we think of when we hear the word slavery. That will help you because the Bible speaks of slavery quite a bit, and it can be troubling at times to understand what's going on with the text. So now let's hear what uh, chapter 15 has to say about this. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. So if you ran up a debt that you couldn't pay in antiquity, there was no such thing as bankruptcy. You just gave yourself over to whoever you owed the money to, and you worked it off. Again, analogous to sharecropping, though not exactly the same. When you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That's why I give you this 
command today. So I just want to pause and say that every seventh year you canceled all debts and every seventh year you let all slaves go free. Regardless of what they owed you, you had to let them go. What's going on in this text? Here's what's going on in this text. Jesus hints at it in Matthew chapter 6 when he does this, this uh, Lord's Prayer. He says, Lord, forgive us our debts in the same way we forgive our debtors. Now, I want you to notice this. Jesus says, if you forgive people when they sin against you, God will forgive you. If you don't forgive sinners when they sin against you, God won't forgive you either. What's going on is that God is telling us to show others the same grace he's shown us. That's what's going on. If you're a recipient of the grace of God, then you are to be a conduit for that grace. You're to be showing it to others. That's what's going on. God is saying, look, I'm modeling for you. I delivered you out of bondage. Now I want you to do the same for everyone else. So the people of God, the people of God are to be known as those who cancel the debts and set free those in bondage. We're the ones who proclaim the mercies and grace of a loving and generous God. The world to be set free. And it starts in your relationships. In fact... If you can't do this at home, it's probably irrelevant whatever else you might do. You see, for most of us, we think, well, I'll do it with the people who are furthest from my inner circle. That's the easy one. If you pull out in front of me on the highway, I'll be mad for, I don't know, 45 seconds. And then I forgive you. You're easy to forgive. But if you're married to me, or if you're one of my children, or when I was growing up, if you were my mom and we didn't get along all, that, all, all the time, that one's one so easy to forgive. What I want you to see is that God saved me in an intimate way. I was in his inner circle. And now he says to me, David, I want you to go do the same. I want you to be a person willing to forgive, willing to get rid of your bitterness, willing to get rid of your resentment, willing to go the second mile and to say, you know what? We have enough bondage in this world. We got enough hurt. Doesn't the world have enough hurt? Uh, that's a real question. Don't we have enough hurt? Isn't there enough hurt by now? Dadgum, we just went through this pandemic. We've lost friends and family members. Half a million people in the U.S. have died. We've seen all the nonsense that's going on in the country, this terrible political season. We've had individuals who are wounded. So much. The, 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 the rift now between blacks and whites in America is one of the worst I've seen in 60 years of living. Don't we have enough pain already? Can't we be the people who... Offer some healing, a little mercy to each other, a little grace. Anyway, that's what God says. Show some grace. You'll get the grace that you show. And then he gets this really tender moment. It doesn't look so tender in the English translations, but it's a tender moment. If your servant says, I don't want to leave. See, in certain cultures, the servant in ancient Israel, in these clan cultures, the servant usually just became one of the family members. What happens if the servant says, but I don't want to leave? And there's a very tender ceremony you go through. If they say, I don't want to leave you because he loves you and your family's well off with you, take an owl, push it through his earlobe on the door, and he'll become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. In other words, pierce their ear. So any time in ancient Israel that you saw a pierced ear, what you were seeing was someone who had been lovingly adopted by another family. Must have been pretty cool. Um, 
By the way, those of you who've pierced your ears, men and women here, I hope it means you've been adopted by a loving God. That's one thing it could mean. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free because their servant to you these six years was worth twice as much as that of a hired hand. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. So we cancel debts. We set people free from their bondage. We'll finish the text, make a few points, and I'm done. So now that he's spoken of setting free, he uh, closes with this admonition to give, give God what's best. By the way, so I've tried to say this before, but think of God in the same way you might think of a magnet and iron filings. You remember you drop the iron filings on a magnet and the magnetic field organizes all of them. No matter how many times you do it, they always organize the same way. And, And this is what God is saying. If you will put me first, everything else will line up. If you don't put me first, you can try to do everything else, but you won't succeed. You only succeed when God is held at the center. And that's what the final text is about. Set apart for the Lord your God every firstborn male of your herds and flocks. Do not put the firstborn of your cows to work. Do not shear the firstborn of your sheep. Each year you and your family are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose. It's just a reminder, the very first blessing you get, give it to me, he says. But it's not just a gift. He says, eat it with me. Eat it with me. Let's share it. That's like when somebody brings you a delicious pie and you say, instead of, oh, I can't wait to take this home, you just say, well, let's sit down and eat it right now, you and me. That's what he's saying. Bring me your best. Keep me at the center and enjoy it with me. If any animal has a defect, is lame or blind or has any serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You're to eat it in your own towns. That is, if it's not flawless, you can still have it. But that's not the one I want. I need the flawless one. It's a statement. Keep God at the center like the magnet and all the filings will line up. Your ethics will be right if God's at the center. And if God's not at the center, your interest in justice will never succeed. You'll always have a distorted view of justice. It's only in God that we can keep justice rightly lined. Your idea of ethics will only be lined up if you keep God at the center. Your notions of beauty, your notions about aesthetics, your notion about altruism, all these, they only line up when God's at the center. If God's not at the center, you'll always end up veering either to the left or to the right. And in some ways, don't mean it to be hard, you become an idolater. Both, in, uh, both the ceremonial unclean and the clean may eat it as if it were a gazelle or a deer. But you must not eat the blood. We've spoken about this. Pour it out on the ground like water. That's because blood is the symbol of life in Scripture. And as we talk about Easter, we've come off Good Friday where the blood of Jesus was shed. And here's how we want to talk about it. The crucifixion took my debt and canceled it. The resurrection set me free from my bondage. Now, guys, who do you need to forgive? Like, who are you holding in bondage? We've got some of you that I'm, I'm quite sure you've let go. I mean, we've got some really mature We've got some awesome people here. But I know many of you are carrying these burdens around. Unforgiveness, bitterness. You're carrying around, you're harboring this this hatred. That's really what it is. This insult. Can I just remind you 
As long as you're keeping that person, your boss, your father, your husband, your wife, your friend, the, the, you know, President Trump or President Biden or whoever you want to pick, as long as you are holding them hostage, you are in bondage as well. Like you're not enjoying the freedom that you were designed to enjoy. God offers us liberty. He says, I can set you free from that. The happy people are the people who are, they're not holding anybody bondage. Y'all have heard me say this. I've been interviewing people in persecuted areas. It's a project I've been working on. It's one I need to accelerate because I, I think we need more conversations. The crazy thing is when I talk to these individuals, be it in North Africa, in the Middle East, in communist countries, in China, I've spoken to several in China, uh, whether they're people who work now in some of the most clandestine ways in most clandestine areas, in Muslim-dominated areas or Hindu-dominated areas, the most amazing thing is that every one of them is the happiest person I've ever spoken to. I told you guys about Roy. His arm's all messed up from where he's been beaten. I asked him how many times. He says, I don't know, maybe a hundred. He can't even use his whole body. And he's the happiest guy in the world. I'll show you this picture. He just smiles all the time. And the crazy thing, he says, we don't hold any bitterness. I love my persecutors. I baptize them. Like it's just suddenly reversing everything to realize I can be set free. You don't have to carry this bondage. As the Bible says, there should be no poor. If you would obey me, there won't be any poor. I want to make sure you understand the signs of bondage. If you have anger, fear, unforgiveness, gossip, resentment, bitterness, discouragement, distrust, and the like, I just remind you, you're not just holding someone else in bondage, right? You're in bondage too. And there doesn't have to be any poor. Let me say this. All kinds of, all kinds of hurt comes our way. Everybody gets hurt. Feelings of being betrayed, uh, feelings of being lied to, all, all the pain comes our way. Let me help you by just making a simple suggestion. You're, you can't avoid having hurt feelings or bad feelings. You can't avoid that. It's, it's a physical sensation. If you step on my toe, I'm going to feel hurt. Here's what you do get a choice. You get the choice of how you're going to respond. I'll give you a quick illustration. So I told you guys I went to Disney with with the family, uh, I don't know, a month or so ago. And my daughter really wanted me to go, and I'd do it for her. I'd go every week for her because anything Rachel wants, I can't seem to say no to. But I can tell you that the, my favorite ride was the Uber ride back to the airport when it was over with. Because <laughs> she convinces me to get in this uh, roller coaster, the Aerosmith one, rock and, roller, rock and roll or whatever it is. Okay, I'm 60. Come on. Like, I've had every thrill I need. I, I was done with thrills years ago. I don't need, so I'm sitting in it thinking, you know, Aerosmith, I kind of used to like their music back when I was a little more paganish than I am today. And uh, <laughs> I, I didn't really realize what was about to happen. If you haven't ridden in this thing, it starts from, ze it goes from zero to 60 miles an hour, I guess in less than a second, and immediately goes upside down in the dark. Okay. Everybody on that ride had the same feeling, the G-force, the, the feeling. 
But we didn't all have the same emotions. <laughs> when we got off, I was like, I was trying to forget some of the bad words that I learned as a kid. And they, I was suppressing those and like, please, I never want to do this again. And Rachel's saying, oh, let's do it again, Dad. Let's do it again, Dad. That was fun. That was fun. So here's the deal. We all experience the same feelings, but we get to decide how we respond. So yes, you're going to get hurt. We're all going to get hurt. But you're going to pick your emotional response. Pick one that is healing. Pick one that you can offer liberty and freedom and grace to someone else. Don't carry a ball and chain around. You really want that? One day you're going to be sitting on a rocking, in a rocking chair on a front porch somewhere. You really want to have 28 or 47 or 138 balls and chains hanging off your legs because you never picked a good emotion? You never would let go. You never canceled a debt. You never set anybody free. That's the life you want. You don't have to live that way. That's the whole point of Deuteronomy 15. You don't have to live that way. You can choose grace-filled, healthy emotions. And let me just say this. This doesn't excuse someone mistreating you. It does not excuse them. But it is sometimes worth remembering that the people who mistreat you sometimes, just remember, they're victims themselves. Everybody you meet is engaged in a great battle. When someone slights you in the hall passing church, it happens. You know, they're busy. They're thinking of something else. They don't say hi to you. You go home and you just think, I can't stand that person. Just remind yourself, I, they may be fighting a terrible battle you don't even know about. It just helps to remember that maybe you're not the only one who's in a life and death struggle here. And remember how much God has forgiven you. You know, if God can accept me, then I ought to be able to accept other people because I'm not all that good a person. I'm trusting in his grace. I, like when we get to the gates of heaven, I'm not going to ask for justice. Who's with me on that? I am not. I don't want justice. I do not want justice because I know what it would look like. My brother and I used to, we had bad mouths. One of my brothers, I guess all of them, but the one I'm thinking of. And he used to say to me, he said, man, we better hope we don't ever get in a car wreck. He said, because if we die like this, it's going to be bad. And I, this, I was, you know, now that I said all that, it dawns on me, I probably should have told that about a third person and not myself. <laughs> but I remember thinking to myself, you're right, man, I don't want to die like this because we were mouthing off. I don't want justice. And if God's going to show me mercy, why can't I show it to you? Like, why can't I give you what God has given me? That's the whole premise of the text. And if you're thinking about justice, and this is one of the big issues. Here's one of the big issues. Yes, but they've never repented of what they've done. They, they stole from me and they kept it. They mistreated me and they're not sorry. Just let me tell you something. God is a just God and he will take care of it. You can trust the justice of God. Look, even people who get caught in crimes, we support a government that exercises or executes justice. We're for that. Governments ought to do that. You don't want a government that doesn't believe in justice. But let the government do the justice thing. I'm going to do the mercy thing. One of the most tender things you ever see in the justice system. You saw it in South Carolina when this white guy goes in and he shoots, what was it? Nine blacks in the middle of a worship service. And did you see how within a month, every one of their family members lines up and says, I forgive you. I forgive you. 
Now, I don't want the state to forgive them. The state needs to execute justice. But what those folks were saying is this, I won't carry that burden around. I'm not going to do it. And you don't have to either. God will worry about justice. You can show grace. And I just say two more things and I'm done because I'm already done with time at least. Use your pain to access disciple making and just remind yourself as long as you're in bondage, you're holding someone else in bondage. So I'm going to say this, forgiveness, canceling a debt, setting someone free does not always mean reconciliation. Listen carefully. It does not always mean reconciliation. Reconciliation takes two people. Forgiveness only takes one. So you can forgive someone who doesn't forgive you. And you can forgive someone who wants nothing to do with you. You can forgive a spouse who's divorced you and they not come back. That's their decision. But you can forgive. But ever so often, God works this amazing miracle where not only is forgiveness and debt release offered, but reconciliation occurs. And so in uh, 2018, after three years of trying to divorce each other and not quite being able to pull the trigger, Art came to his senses. And I think, at least metaphorically, if not physically, on his hands and knees said, what have I done? And begged her to take him back. And she writes so openly about her life. Oh, my goodness. And she's an awesome author, too. Lisa is. You know what she did? She took note cards and she wrote every sin he had committed against her, one on each note card. And like, that means every time he committed a sin, every angle of every sin, she had a hundred cards. And she laid them out on the floor and she prayed over each one. And when she was found, when she found the grace to forgive, she would cover one up until she had covered every one of them up. Forgiven. Together, not everybody gets the reconciliation, but everybody has access to the forgiveness. By the way, it's a shameless promo to say Lisa will be here to speak, but on Friday night of uh, May the 14th, Lisa's coming to North Boulevard. Everybody's invited. She'll bring a big crowd. It'll be an awesome day. And then on Saturday, she's doing a women's event also here at North Boulevard. And uh, the reason I think that Lisa is so well-read, a best-selling author, is because very few people have had more debt to cancel than Lisa Turkhurst, and very few have done it with such grace. So right at the end of her book, this is what she says. Y'all ready for this? You've got much too much going for you to be stunted by anger haunted by resentment, or held back by fear. Grow into God's grace by giving it kindly and accepting it freely. Throw your arms up in victory and declare, I'm free to forgive so I can live. Do it once, twice, 70 times seven. Make it an undeniable fact that you're speaking to women, you're a girl bound one day for heaven. The forgiveness message you dare to declare is the evidence of Jesus in you that no soul can deny. Sing it like an anthem that the one who is crushed cannot have their joy hushed. 
Scatter it like confetti, coloring the blandness of surviving with the radiance of thriving. Release it like the fantastic fragrance everyone loves and always wants more of. Declare it. I'm free. Let's stand up. Jesus' words, John 8 and verse 36, whom the Son sets free. This is our Easter message.